This is the Back to Business Podcast with your Grand Rapids Chamber. Welcome to the Back to Business Podcast. A little bit different of a podcast this week. Um, on Thursday, March 23rd, we hosted a town hall discussing a bunch of different things going on in the banking industry, Silicon Valley Bank, inflation, a lot of things going on in the finance world. So we're actually going to tune in and listen to uh, the conversation that was hosted by our Vice President of Investor and Corporate Relations, Omar Cueva. So I'm actually going to stop talking right here, and I'm going to turn it to Omar for the rest of that conversation. Where do we stand and what's next? What does it mean for business and bank depositors? To help us make sense of this, this morning, Dr. Logan Jones, Dean of the School of Business at Ferris State University, and Ben Verwise, founder and senior financial advisor of Fiduciary Financial Advisors, is here to help us. We'll have time for question and answer, so please put your questions in the chat. And with that, let's turn it over to Dr. Jones. First, Dr. Jones, where do we stand? Um, so we right now where we stand is we're going with, as you mentioned, with the increase in interest rates that's been signaled, we will likely see more of these banks that based on their business model and, and how they've invested, they will have some issues going down the road with uh, interest rate risk and liquidate and liquidity risk, which is what got Silicon Valley Bank uh, into trouble is if you look uh, at this, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of factors at play, but one of them definitely is how they are uh, mitigating their risk in terms of the future. Also, there's a governance risk, there's a business model risk. So how they go about the business of banking puts some of these banks at greater risk. Um, and as you mentioned, the Fed signaled early this week that they're 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 more interested in uh, dealing with inflation than dealing with uh, you know. A, potential banking crisis in the future. So that's where we're at. Um, you know, with Silicon Valley Bank in particular, you know, you can, it's pretty easy to follow the path of two weeks ago. Uh, we, we have, you know, uh, on March 8th, on Wednesday, they made announcement that, that they'd taken about a $2 billion loss, uh, which kind of sent waves across and it was largely to their, uh, fixed income or their fixed interest uh, securities that they had um, that were greatly affected when interest rates went up and became worth quite a bit less than they were previously were. Um, so they couldn't create enough cash when withdrawals hit the following day on Thursday, which was a little over 40 billion is my understanding of withdrawals. 20% uh, of their depositors wanted their money. Uh, and then by Friday, the FDIC came in and seized the bank. And now they're looking at a buyer, looking for people to purchase that. And as you mentioned, Signature Bank followed over the weekend. That's kind of where we sit, um, where you know the increase in interest rates coming, how that affects future and other banks will be, we'll have to sit and watch. Thank you, Dr. Jones. And to add a local perspective, you know, Ben, what are your thoughts? So yeah, to, when it comes to a banking uh, environment like what we're seeing, first off, I think everybody on the call knows that Silicon Valley Bank is not a local bank, right? We can The name right there implies it's primarily along the coast. This is a bank that had 18 local branches. Uh, from a brick and mortar perspective, it's a very small bank. It is a large institution in terms of deposits, obviously. But what's important to recognize is that Silicon Valley Bank 
does not look like a lot of local banks. And actually, there are very few local investors. I did speak with one yesterday. Um, I think it's important to recognize, so there are a few, but what I think is important to recognize is that Silicon Valley Bank uh, was a bank that primarily lent and made a niche industry of lending to technology startups, and thus the name. And so uh, that was their niche. That was their marketplace. That the, They have a significantly higher per capita customer base made up of venture capital firms, cryptocurrency firms, and technology startups. So interestingly, we can when you when you look at the data, you can see very clearly uh, that they were just a much more cavalier bank naturally due to who they worked with. And not just who they worked with, but it turns out how they worked. And so what we're seeing is that they the the, the actual catalyst of the failure has much more to do with the way in which the management team of Silicon and Signature and probably some others uh, managed their long-term portfolio. And what I mean by that, and if it's possible, Omar, I'd love to give a visual to this. Um, so this was a really helpful visual for us with our clients. I mean, the chemical makeup of a bank is that they take in deposits and then have what is called a reserve requirement, which is the amount that they have to keep on hand at all times. And with whatever they is above and excess of their reserve requirement, that's what they can loan out to me, you, the people on this call, right? And so what Silicon Valley did, and what's the question mark for the industry on how many others did this, is they took this right side and invested it in a way that frankly doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and, and so we think as consumers about banks as organizations that lend us money. And that's true for some of the money on their balance sheet, but not all of it. And what Silicon Valley did was take the money they weren't allowed to lend out due to their reserve requirements that they're required to maintain. And they invested those dollars in a very cavalier fashion in long-term government bonds. And that is why fundamentally the interest rate increase is, is crippling this bank is because, and you can see as this infographic just plays out, when interest rates rise, newer bonds come out that then pay more which decreases the value because if there's a bond that pays six, why would anyone want the bond that pays four? So the value of it goes down. And that's exactly what happens. So then the bank balance sheet effectively shrinks, even though the liabilities to consumers are still the exact same. And so what, what Silicon did was really not you know, it, it's, it's funny because everything looks obvious in hindsight, right? And everybody who understands what's happened goes, well, why would they do that? And it's a very valid question because I don't know. I, I have no clue why they would do that. It's, it sort of defies logic and reason. And I've talked to executives of a few of the local banks here, and they said, we wouldn't be caught dead doing that, right? And so what does that mean for local investors? What it does mean is we need to ask questions like, I wonder if my bank or uh, is doing this same sort of cavalier now uh, cavalier management of funds. And what I can tell you is that most banks do not. Right? This is not. This is considered within the banking sector a very reckless way of managing customer deposits, customer reserves, and 
and a bank in general. And, and so it's, I think what I'm saying, Omar, is that, I, well, I don't, I got to be careful because I don't want to say, oh, it was just a Silicon Valley bank problem. There might be others. And like Dr. Jones said, in the next coming weeks, we're going to find out. Um, but locally, you know, the, the bank management teams locally tend to be much more conservative. And even I would say across the country, most bank management teams tend to be much more conservative than what Silicon Valley Bank did. And I do believe, I don't, I, I, I have a couple of our team members have talked to employees there, uh, and we've talked to a few people who had deposits there. But ultimately, it does sound like Silicon Valley Bank's ethos and culture is, was really built around risk taking. Right. And, and when you and when you have a culture that's built around risk taking, whose primary deposit base is a group of risk takers, and then you have a low interest rate environment. You know, it, it just it looks like a toxic combination that resulted in bad decision making. And the good news for local investors is that's not pandemic throughout the financial system. And we know now much better than we did before what the word pandemic means, right? Is it spread? This isn't, we're not talking about something that should spread very quickly throughout the financial system because there isn't a contagious aspect to it. Just because Silicon Valley Bank did it poorly doesn't mean that there, there should be a trickle effect. Now, there could be because the nature of bank runs and bank fail crises. I mean, what we have to figure out is we're dealing, are we dealing in an environment in bank failures or bank crisis? Because a bank failure, or even we figured out yesterday, I did a, I did a, a, a talk like this for, for the local YPO chapter. And uh, we had a banker, one of, one of the senior management teams, uh, team members on from one of the largest banks. Uh, and they, this just fun fact that I just learned yesterday, there's 4,125 banks registered with the FDIC, right? 4,125. And so far, what, three have failed, four, I think. So if we end up with, I have no delusions we're going to stay at four. There's probably going to be a few more. Um, I, my guess is they won't be local. I can't promise that. But the simple fact of the matter is if we end up at 10 or 12 or 15, while I'm not saying that would be good, it would be an isolated instance of bank failure due to poor management and what we've just described then is capitalism, right? Bad banks should fail if they're cavalier and have a culture of risk-taking and don't manage their money prudently for the same reason anyone on this call would go bankrupt if they you know, racked up just way too much credit card and didn't manage their finances responsibly. And that's not a bank crisis and that's not contagion and it's not a pandemic. And so what we have to find out that we can't find out easily, unfortunately, is how widespread is this problem? And to try to take it to a localized level, best guess, not very relevant to most of your local banks. I can't see a single reason why if I'm a, if I'm a consumer on this call where I need to walk into my bank and pull my money out, not to mention where are you going to go with it right now? That's a whole different animal, but we can talk about that. Um, so from a local perspective, uh, I would consider this uh, noise and monitor it. And I'm not saying there's no validity to it, but I am saying there's a very low degree of probability at this point that it would affect the average person or business owner in West Michigan. I don't know if that answers your question, Omar, but those are my initial thoughts. Thank you. And I, I have a follow-up for Dr. Jones. Have we seen this before? Maybe it's a rhetorical question. Uh, well, I mean, runs on banks uh, like this, I mean, that that's the 2008 crisis. We 
course, saw it in the 70s. Uh, they, this, this has happened. And going back to the 1930s, which was the beginning of the FDIC, um, the interesting thing with that, there's two things at play here that I think are interesting for people. And I would absolutely agree with Ben. That they, 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 this isn't a crisis. We're, we're talking about banks who, because of their business practices, how, how they want to invest their money, um, they, they are at greater risk. It's, it's a leadership issue. It's a business model issue. Um, but with, with the FDIC, you know, that was originally created for this very purpose, which is to protect, protect deposits on, on when we had runs on banks during the great depression. That that's the, the interesting fact there is that the, the actual amount at the time was $2,500. So now it's 250,000. So the purpose of it has changed over time because if you take twenty five hundred dollars in nineteen thirty three and adjust for inflation to today, it's it's a little over fifty grand is what you're talking about should be protected. But but we have two hundred fifty thousand dollars protected. So the purpose and why it came about has changed over time as the amounts increase. Because I myself, like others probably on this call, I don't have two hundred fifty thousand dollars in savings and checking and something that that I would need protected in deposits. So it's it's has moved up. So as you mentioned initially, with legislators talking about increasing the amount, it's okay. What's what kind of deposits are we wanting to protect? And and this is just like the Federal Reserve. The, the FDIC is it's self funded. It's funded out of dues member banks pay to it, and that's where this money comes from. Uh, as long as it holds, and then they can always ask, of course, the federal government for money if if they basically run out. In this case guaranteeing the deposits of everyone, not just people up to, or deposits up to $250,000. So, you know, and and so we have seen this before. Again, that mechanism was put in place for a very specific purpose, which is to prevent runs on banks. The difference now versus then as a run then would be a mass mob of people going to the front door, beating on the door, wanting cash, wanting wanting physical currency. Um, that was backed by gold. I mean, this 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 was a this was a different time in the 30s. Now people are looking at their phone, and the group that especially Silicon Valley catered to has been pointed out. This is a very specific, very financially literate group of people that paid attention to how their bank and and it is a, a close knit group of people. So without knowing, I'm I'm guessing the text went around pretty quick saying, you know, we're pulling our money out of the bank, and this this is a you know, uh, companies pulling it out, not individuals pulling money out. This is companies that pulled all their deposits out again on that Thursday. Um, and because of how they had their, uh, uh, Silicon Valley had their money invested, they couldn't generate enough cash to cover the withdrawals. And that was it. The difference here, I mean, it, and, and I kind of wanted to dispel a few things that are in the media and how um, how this has been framed as, as has been kind of said, this is, it's not, this isn't a catastrophic failure. I don't think it's signaling a failure like that. I think part of it is the, the one of the framing problems is, is about the bailouts. This, this, they're guaranteeing the deposits. The banks will no longer exist. So this isn't like the bailouts in, in 2008 and that we're, you know, we're saving the bank. We're actually, whoever invested in stock in Silicon Valley, they're on their own. It's the deposits that are being, the, the difference here is that what we were told you know, in 2010, when Dodd-Frank was passed, which was 50 billion, those are anything above 50 billion was a large bank, is then they should not fail. So they're too large to fail. That's what we were told, you know, that that would be the cutoff. That's, those are the banks that would get, that would get saved because they're too large to fail. They would crash our economy. 
Um, but in since then, in 2017, 2018, that amount you know, was increased to 250 billion. The interesting fact with that is, is that gets you, um, is that Silicon Valley was around 200 to 10 is where they were at. So they were right below. There's quite a few banks that stay below 250, uh, 250 billion in assets because they don't want the enhanced regulations. Um, but, and, and this is all hypothetical, but, you know, part of those enhanced regulations from the Fed is stress testing. So they get tested for things, especially how they mitigate risk. Uh, Silicon Valley wasn't in the group because they weren't over the 250 that was raised in 2019 is when it was enacted in 2018 that was approved. Um, so they weren't actually part of the group that gets this type of enhanced stress testing. Um, again, it's hypothetical would it would or the weather would have changed. The Fed's, you know, there's only so many things they can do. Again, FDIC steps in. Once the capitalization rate gets below 2% is when they step in and will seize a bank and like they did in this case. Um, so there are some other things at play that are, I think, broader questions for us to, to look at. And, and to me, it's, again, what's too large to fail? Because we, we're changing the rules now and in and, and terms of how now. But again, it is not the same as 2008. It's not the same as the bailouts that we saw then. It's, this is a different animal. So. I'm encouraging our attendees to uh, please type in your question. Uh, and it's a question for, for both of you. Wasn't Dodd-Frank supposed to address some of this? Sorry. Hey, you want me to weigh in on that? Go ahead, Logan, unless you want me to tackle that one. Go ahead, Ben. Go ahead. I already touched on it a bit. Well, yeah. Yeah, I would say Dr. Jones did a, a nice job kind of talking through what you know, Dodd-Frank like every piece of government legislation, and this is, I don't mean this as a political statement, but every piece of government legislation is usually well-intended and has unintended consequences, right? We've seen this throughout history, whether it's financial, whether it's regulatory, it doesn't. So uh, I wouldn't say that this is particularly what Dodd-Frank was created to do. What Dodd-Frank was created to do was backstop the possibility of a failing system and as, as Dr. Jones has already pointed out, this isn't a failing system. This is a failing bank. This is a single failing institution, or maybe at this point, three or four, maybe a dozen. And out of 4,100, that makes up less than, far less than 1%. So this is, you know, Dodd-Frank was actually written for totally different reasons. And he alluded to those stress tests are a key part of Dodd-Frank. And what those stress tests did to his point, and I'll share back my the, the screen I had up there a moment ago to put a visual on this. You know, what Dodd Frank did was say, "Hey, we as as a system, you have a burden of responsibility to the people to keep enough money over on this side, on the orange side. You can't just lend out all of your money and not keep a sufficient number of reserves." Because if you do that, you become fragile, and then we have to step in and bail you out, which was what the TARP program was. And so what Dodd-Frank did was it for those banks that do have to go through stress testing, which not coincidentally, I don't believe, the line of where that stress testing kicks in is right above where Silicon Valley Bank is. Dr. Jones pointed out they're at, two, they're at 210, 220, something like that. The line is 250. Well, Silicon Valley Bank was somewhere in the high teens in terms of the largest institutions in the country. And what that means is almost all of the other institutions in the country above SBB 
have to go through stat, tra- stress testing. So you, you wouldn't see this at a JP Morgan Chase. You wouldn't see this at a Bank of America because they're going through that stress testing and the reserve requirements that Dodd-Frank imp- implemented say, hey, on this right side, you actually have to keep far more money than you did in the past. And we get to have some say in how you manage that money. And so ironically, you could make the argument that actually this is an unintended consequence of Dodd-Frank because by saying a bank needs to keep more in reserve requirements, which is now in turn money that they cannot lend out and make money on in a very low interest rate environment with what I have to presume is a demanding board of directors and group of shareholders that want ROI on the capital. The bank had a natural incentive to try to generate as much money as they could out of the right side of the, of the, the, the balance sheet and therefore was incentivized to try to take extra risk to generate extra return on the higher reserve requirement amount and in Dodd-Frank, there's nothing within Dodd-Frank that would have changed anything, right? And so um, and then throw compounds the fact that SVB was not part of the stress testing program, so they aren't subject to risk mitigation and risk review. It is very likely, I, 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 I'm guessing I know where Dr. Jones would stand on this, but curious to hear his thoughts too, is it's very likely that a Silicon Valley bank had to go through stress testing that they would have failed. I mean, it's, I can't fathom that they wouldn't have. But to, the, to answer the question about Dodd-Frank, no, it actually is solving for a different problem. Um, you know, in 2008, we had systemic failure due to excess risk-taking. And because of the amount of intra-bank borrowing that was happening and the amount of leverage that was in the system, that was truly a, a potential contagious event that did become contagious, meaning a bank failing uh, would, could, and would and could trigger another bank that was healthy the day before starting the decline to failure. And that's not what this is. This is, you know, imagine 4,125 castles independent of each other. They're very defensible because they have no bearing on whether the other one down the road fell or not. And that was not the case in 2008. Dodd-Frank was really, was really meant to stem systemic failure, particularly across the uber-large institutions. And SVB is not one of them. And, and even if they were, they would have failed the Dodd-Frank test. And also the Dodd-Frank Act was solving for a different problem altogether. I'll start taking some questions from our, from our audience. Uh, here's one. We often see institutions and people react, sometimes unjustified, to news like this. What are some of the expected economic reactions we'll see across sectors? What are some of the economic reactions we'll see across sectors? Uh, I mean, you can go, Ben. I, I, what I, what I expect is, um, you know, as we've mentioned, that this isn't a systemic, you know, crash of banking. I, I think. What you're going to see is more um, a push for more, not necessarily more transparency, but a push for, for people to educate themselves. And, 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 and when I say people, I'm, I'm including organizations, businesses collectively in that discussion. Um, to, they're going to pay more attention to what their banks are doing and how they're invested, um, especially with the amount of money in this. 
Um, you know, one of the things been mentioned that I that I again it is puzzling to me is the, it's reported at different levels, but this uh, Silicon Valley is about the, the 18th largest bank. Um, so to get uh, that again for Dodd Frank, the, the the 250 billion gets you into the top 14 is toward 14 or 15. It's the, those are considered large banks. If you go back to the original um, 50 billion, which it gets you to about the you know the top 30. I think it's around about the top 30. And again, this is 30, as was mentioned, out of 4,100. Um, so there are a lot of other banks that could be in, engaging in these types of uh, basically uh, just lack of risk medication, just not paying attention, again, to liquidity risk and to, um, to, to, to interest risk, which is what's hurting. Um, you know, as was mentioned, I, I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know. The, the estimates I've seen, at least in the media, it's about 55% was in bonds and, these, and again, these fixed interest um, assets is what they were investing in. And, and when you have historically low interest rates, like that's not what you get into. I mean, you don't invest over invest. The industry average from what I was reading is about 30% and there are 55% invested in those things. Um, the only way they hold their value or become more valuable is interest rates can drop and and they can't drop if they're at you know a if we're at a quarter of a point is where your uh is where uh, the, the treasury notes are um so you know when now we're over you know roughly about five percent so it's it, there's been a when we say interest rates have increased they've increased a lot in the last year they've went up quite a bit um so you know in my mind back to the question again people are going to pay more attention to banks what are they banking and more attention more attention to their investments because you know it, it's the, the talk of recession the talk of what this means and where we're headed um it, you know we have you know kind of what we saw we, you know the baby boomer generation ended up back to work after 2008 because they lost their retirements because of how things were invested those kind of questions are going to come back again now which that generation's quite a bit older now but the, the reality is is generation x so like myself like maybe uh, maybe i want to retire in the near future where where's mine at where where is this at for me and where where is that invested at those are the things people are going to pay attention to now i think staying with you dr jones yeah, I, you know, or go ahead go ahead ben well as i say I, unless anybody on this call owns a bank i just don't see this affecting a lot of industries i mean the reality is this is a this is a bank management problem. And to Dr. Jones's point, one possible outcome from this would be the government says, hey, guess what? Now the stress testing limit is 100, not 250. And the top 50 banks in the country are subject. I, but, but no one on this call probably cares unless you own a bank because, you know, for, to be honest, and I know there's another question in the queue about inflation, that's much more of an impactful event to your average business owner right now and, and to, to your average industry. So. So why don't you chime in on that question, Ben? We're seeing ongoing inflation. When might it slow? Yeah. So inflation and interest rates are directly linked and inflation. It's important to understand what inflation is. And I think that honestly, we've done a bit of a disservice to the consumer public because there's still a lot of people out there that think inflation is an is like a, a you know a manageable thing and we can do our best but this isn't 
yeah, I guess the best, maybe it's because I'm recently in this boat, but it's like, it's not like getting a puppy. You don't just train it. You don't just get to say how it works. It's a, it's a very difficult to control thing. And w- the reason inflation is so difficult to control is because it's a byproduct of extra money in a system. And so I'm going to, again, I like visuals. I like, I like educating people with visuals. So I'm going to share over to you guys one more chart. And if you would, Omar, just let me know when you see this one pop on your screen. Should say Brad up in the upper left corner there. Is that what you're seeing? Yes. Okay. So this is a chart directly from Fred is the Federal Reserve. This is a chart directly from the Federal Reserve. And this is a chart on something that, you know, it's probably the most exciting topic we could talk about, right? If any of you want to have a really riveting happy hour, let's get together and let's talk about M2 money supply. I'm obviously kidding because this is the kind of thing that's buried pretty deep in a you know, a, 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 an academic journey down the road of economics and finance. And if you didn't take classes for that stuff, you probably don't care. But if you want to understand what's happening symptomatically with inflation, this is an important thing to understand. And what you're looking at is, is a chart on the amount of reserves in our financial system. And I could take this chart back another 50 years, and it would look like a fairly steady trend. So what M2 is, is it's the amount of checking accounts, savings accounts, CDs, money markets, it's basically all of our collective money in the banking system, okay? And you don't have to be great at charts to understand that there's a fairly steady pattern in this movement. And if I, I'm going to actually change it, it, this is, it gets a little easier to see if I shrink the time pattern. So you could see for decades through gray bars or recessions in the past, by the way, historically, 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 historically crashes didn't have any real bearing. We all know there was a crash in 2001. We had a big crash in 2008. And you can see the M2 money supply stayed fairly stable throughout that frame of time, generally up and to the right over time because productivity increases, profitability increases over time, and that results in an increasing amount of the system. And then look what happens in COVID. And I know we've talked about COVID ad nauseum. We all have. And yet one of the things we haven't talked enough about COVID, forget the disease for a moment, forget the, 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 human, the human aspect. That's all, 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 that's all there. And it's all been talked about. But what we haven't done a good job talking about, and I think it's important to educate people on, is look at the spike in M2 money supply. We've never seen anything like this before. Uh, just to repeat myself briefly, Slow, steady uptrend, crash here, crash here, no real change in the money supply, which is why you didn't see rampant inflation coming out of past crashes. Um, And then look what happens right here. Look at that spike. That's what I'm saying. This might be the first chart you've ever looked at in your life, and you know something's wrong with it, right? And so what this is, is this is, to put this in practical terms, this is PPP. This is unemployment. This is nobody spent any money. This is, you know, a lot of people, I can tell you this as a financial planner, a lot of people buckled down, A, because they had to, they couldn't go out to dinner, they couldn't go to a concert, they couldn't go to a game, and B, uh, they were afraid to, because no one knew who was going to lose their job, and then what we found, and I think a lot of your participants on this call who run businesses will have evidence of this, that not only did some of their businesses uh, do okay, some of them thrived. I mean, Meyer had its best year in 2020. And 
And they weren't alone. Several companies, a lot of companies did. And so all this new money comes into the system. And you can see that we break a hundred year trend. And this is to the tune of trillions of dollars. So when you think about what trillions of dollars does, if I gave somebody on this call, you know, $20 million, they're probably going to make some different decisions the next day. They're probably going to either retire or go out to eat or splurge on something or go buy a lottery ticket. They're going to do something different than they did the, they did the day before. And so for about a year, year and a half, we pump money into the system to the tune of trillions of dollars. We all can't really go outside or do much or spend much. And then all of a sudden, as we reopen the economy, we can. Well, what do we, so the logical question should be, what do we expect when we have trillions of dollars of extra money that we now feel comfortable spending? It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that that money is getting spent, getting spent on travel and food and you name it across the board. Right? This is why prices of food are up is because there's more people with more money that want that thing. And there's always a limited supply of those things to spend money on. And so we can't act as this inflation. We don't know how it got here. It's this ephemeral thing. We talk about inflation as if it's, you know, I'm not sure why food is up. Well, here's why. It, it, it's very clear. There's too much money in the system. So then the answer to your question, Omar, when does it change, is the money that is in excess has to make its way through the system, get spent, and some of that inflation is never going to go away for the same reason you've never seen a postage stamp go back to five cents like it was decades ago, right? Some things just never go back down. Now, other things do, gas, technology because of innovation, et cetera. We will see prices come down in some of those things. But things like if somebody's doing a renovation, I don't expect labor or wages within trades to go down for a very long time. I don't expect that some prices of goods are going to come down again. Um, but we are starting to see a capitulation and a slowdown in inflation, which means that the, the, the actions of the Federal Reserve are starting to work, which is why, by the way, they're not slowing the train down, because that is a bigger problem to them. Probably, if I had to guess, I'm not privy. I'm saying that 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 I've heard recently is that Jerome Powell is our economic tour guide, right? And uh, I think that's just a really uh, humorous way of saying we're all along for his ride. And I'm guessing Silicon Valley Bank is costing him zero sleep and inflation is costing him a lot of sleep. So when we think about when does this come down, it comes down slowly as money makes its way through the system. It, just, it doesn't just go away overnight. Uh, we could drastically raise rates way more than we have and, and basically put a, a clinch on the system, but it would cause a severe recession quickly, possibly even risk going into a depression. And Jerome Powell knows this, so that's why he's doing it slowly, moderated over time in bite-sized pieces to try to let the air out of the balloon before it pops. And I can't say whether he's doing a good job or not. I can tell you, you know, I think it's encouraging that we haven't already tipped into a pretty severe recession. And, you know, if I, if I have to choose to feel bad for the business owner who's dealing with inflation or the Silicon Valley bank shareholder or board who made poor decisions, I'll side with the business owner every time. So I, I do think we're gonna continue to see inflation come down, but it's gonna continue to be slow. My guess is it's gonna take at least a couple few more years before we get back to a four to 5% type of level. 
And I don't have any delusions we'll go back to a 2% or less inflation within the next several years. Any other key takeaways from Chairman Powell's remarks uh, yesterday from your perspective, Dr. Jones? Um, well, I, I, I would agree with Ben. I bet inflation's keeping him up at night. Um, you know, we're at 6%. Last, last year, we kind of topped out about 8%, um, but we'd his, historically it had been around 2%. And the goal for the Fed is 2%. If you look, that's, you know, the, there's only two purposes the, the Fed exists is to control inflation and, and to pay attention to unemployment. That, that's, that's their role. That, that's basically why they exist. Um, what, how they do that is, is purely supply and demand. It's they, they push money in, into our economy or they pull money out of our economy. And, and they do that again, by interest rates, so people invest in uh, in the government, and 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 actually they will buy back treasury uh, notes and and pull to pull money out of, and then in this case they lower interest rates to, to push money in and um, to keep people from saving and hoarding up. Um, so I what happens with this is um, what I would say is between uh, Chairman Powell and and our uh, Treasury Secretary, you know the. the the chart that Ben showed was is 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 exactly what's going on. There was a ton of money pushed out, especially for the pandemic. Um, inflation was absolutely going to happen. There was no way to avoid it because of that. Because again, we're putting a bunch a bunch of money into the um, into our economy, um, and you know to say the which was what was said was this is transitory. It's it's going to be a temporary inflation. You know, honestly. Historically, we only see that when we're moving from a, the economy's contracting and then it's going to expand. That that's and it is a brief period, and then we move on at a steady rate. Um, that there is a brief change. In this case, a pandemic did this. I what I foresee is that the, the Fed will continue to um, raise interest rates until they can get uh, get control and keep keep it trending down. I would. I would also agree with Ben. I don't see it going to two percent anytime soon. It's going to be, uh, we'll, we'll get back to four or five. Um, but the reason the eight percent is such an interesting number is because we did, we haven't seen that since the '80s. So it's been forty years since we were at eight um, percent, and 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 I believe six is, is probably in that range too, where we are now. Um, but at the end of the day, it's only inflation's how it comes about. There's Two, there's really only two primary reasons for it, and, and it's linked to demand and cost. So a demand pull is there's a demand on a product or service that that's it out far outpaces production, and until production catches up, the dollar won't buy the same thing. It costs you two dollars now to buy that same thing because the demand's increased so much. The cost push is that the that prices are pushed up because costs are passed through a manufacturer through a company. Their cost gets what we see routinely in the news is that cost is going to get passed down to the consumer. Well, there's there's truth in that, and that's that's the second version of inflation. And why when prices go up, that's that's inflation. That that's, that means your dollar's not buying as much as it once did. Um, again, the only way to combat that is to pull money out, and it's not like turning a bus. This takes time, and 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 then again, there's a lot of factors involved, and and then you interject a pandemic uh, into that or some other you know kind of national international uh, global issues into these things. Um, and it takes a very long time to get back to where we were. And I, and I, and I hope people understand, I don't, a lot of us don't foresee us getting back to where we were. We're not gonna get back to 2% uh, for, for 
I don't know when that will happen, actually. So um, the interesting thing about if you look at uh, the, the stress testing that we mentioned earlier is the Federal Reserve actually publishes that. You can they have all the tests that they do on the site. And um, most of them are more around economic factors that we would expect. So if there's a drop in GDP or an increase in unemployment, um, so pandemics and things like that typically aren't involved. Well, now there, this year there is actually a global crisis as part of one of their stress testing from what I understand. So I think that's becoming part of our reality in the future and how we look at, again, mitigating risk. And um, But the difference here, banking as a whole, the difference with that versus other businesses is, you know, the, what they um, use is, you know, is, is, is our money, is the customer's money. It's, if this was a just a product, if this was a retailer that went out of business, you would close it down and you would liquidate everything and pay off whoever they owe debt to and then you're done. But in this case, you can't do that because again, the, the product that's being sold or the, the, that's being used again is deposits. It's, it's the money that we're investing, having them hold for us and hopefully grow for us as depositors. That's why banking is and should be heavily regulated, but it's it's what level of regulation and depending on the size and what their practices are, what, what are they doing? Again, how are they mitigating risk? That's going to be the issue. As we get close to wrapping up today, any last uh, thoughts, um, recommendations, any advice for our members? Any advice for our members? I'll start with Ben and then I'll, I'll wrap up with Dr. Jones. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I give advice about money for a living, so I usually have some. Um, number one, if, it, if the, we live in a culture and a society that bombards us with information at all times, there's a lot of backstory and, and reason of how we got here. There's an old adage that in the past, when all your news came from the local newspaper, local TV, that if they, you know, if, if they, if the newspaper said the weather looks good today, you'd just keep on walking past the stand. If the weather, if the front headlines had big storm coming, you bought a copy, right? And so it's important to keep this mindset in mind that the news and the media, while I have no issues with the media existing, they serve a purpose and a lot of them are wonderful human beings. You have to remember at the end of the day, their collective job, regardless of where their biases are, is to serve their interests, not yours. So if you want to serve your interests, you need to ask questions that are good and that are rational. But once you find out things like Dr. Jones and I have talked about that you know, this really shouldn't have a major impact on us, then the next time you see that on your TV, shut it off. Don't pay, don't give the media and the news that doesn't actually have any real bearing on you the time or the attention when you could be out building your business, when you could be out, you know, doing, spending time with your family. I'm not saying don't ever pay attention. What I am saying is you have to understand what is material to your life and what isn't. If we're having a banking system failure, that's worth educating yourself about. If five or 10 or 15 banks are cavalier and don't, and they fail, that's capitalism and you can move on with your day, right? So um, have a good sounding board of professional advisors, regardless of what industry you're in, what you do. This is a, I, I'm, I'm a big believer that a good financial advisor, that's my bias, but a good accountant, a good attorney, a good, you know, you need, you need people in your life 
that you can go to and ask questions about. And I believe the call is mostly comprised of business owners. At the end of the day, what we find is so many business owners are too busy running their businesses to build out uh, a foundation of knowledge and trusted resources and valuable contacts on the personal side of things, but don't, don't let it go to waste because this is a great chance to, to make sure the people who you, who you rely on in your life to help you understand which questions you should asking, be asking, how you should be asking them, et cetera, um, because this one's pretty benign. We didn't dive into this, but my view is that this is part of a routine economic cycle that Dr. Jones educates on. I've got an undergrad and a master's degree in finance. I learned about this stuff in textbooks. This is not an outlier systemic failure like the pandemic was or like 2008 was. This is part of a normal routine economic cycle we're in. And, um, and bad companies should fail, right? And so don't let the noise of just normal day-to-day business activity, some good, some bad, it's the nature of it, influence your life too much and take you away from focusing on what really matters. I would agree completely with Ben. So it, it don't, uh, you know, the media has to sell news and they have to sell ad space, which means they got to have people going to their websites and watching their shows. So they are going to sensationalize these things. Hey, hey, if, if, um, if Ben's going to sell financial advice, I'll, I'll sell education. So I get, you know, get education, uh, educate yourself, uh, go learn about the FDIC, go learn about the Fed. When you see those things in the news, go learn exactly what they are, what they do. Um, there are, uh, there are definitely news media that slant things and t- to fit their own narratives, like don't uh, understand that this when we say this is a niche bank, this is this is they were doing their own thing and, and really not paying attention to the environment. They were, and and it's very hard to emphasize that in, in, in a in a one hour span of exactly how different they were as an outlier to to the rest of the the, the forty one hundred plus banks that exist. But they really were, and it, the, the the thing, the reason this hit the news is because of the size of them. But and and but it was because their clients were venture capitalists. They work in big numbers. That's that's the whole, I mean, that's why they were the size they were. Um, but it's also the reason they crashed in a day is because those are those are skittish folks by nature. They, they, they are they that's the point, is they they live and breathe in risk. They do not want their money risk, they do not want their money in risk. So they pulled it out and moved it somewhere else. But while you know SVB worked for them and in their favor, they they loved that bank for, I mean, they, they, you're talking about this, the growth of this bank was impressive for the amount of time since it, because it, it came around in the eighties, I believe. Um, but I, but I would, that's what I would say is educate yourself. Do not buy into this. Do not uh, quickly react to news of these types of things. Educate yourself, you know, um, and, and understand as, as we mentioned a few times, 250,000 is guaranteed if you're a depositor. The people who should be really concerned about this are people who invest in banks, who buy stock in banks like Silicon Valley. Those are the ones right now that are losing sleep over this. Like the depositors are, they were, they were all, they were told by Friday, they were, you know, um, less than two weeks ago that they were, it was guaranteed. They were not going to, they were, their deposits were not at risk. Um, And I think they, within 24 hours, they had access to their funds. So it was not, um, it was not what it's being produced or, or the news is being uh, portraying it as. Um, but I do think, again, from a governance standpoint, from a regulatory standpoint, it does signal some things that 
hopefully the legislators will look at and they will they will rethink again what is a big bank what is you know what exactly is how much of a so teeth would we want to give to the fed in terms of regulating uh banks and and how much they can stick their nose into how businesses go about the business of banking that's going to do it you know i want to thank you both for your time this morning and if our members want to get involved in our work uh on these issues consider joining the tax and regulatory affairs a committee uh, or sign up for our first Friday calls. We'd love to have you at the table. Uh, but, but before we go, I'd like to invite you all to attend our Diversity and Talent Summit that happens on April 26th. As we look at business growth, we're going to focus on how businesses can be successful in a diverse and a digital and divided world. Thank you so much for investing in our organization. Uh, I appreciate you joining us today and have a fantastic day.